The title for this evening's talk is Do Not Confuse Equanimity with Indifference. That is the major concern of this talk. Again, do not confuse equanimity with indifference. Let me lay down the foundation of this talk by first focus on one of the most fundamental teachings of the Buddha a teaching which he called Paticca Samuppara, variously translated in English as dependent arising, dependent origination, codependent arising. The key feature of this teaching goes like this. Whenever our consciousness, our mind, if you wish, makes contact with some item, say contact with an object, say a visible object or a tangible object, say a person, say a concept, whatever, mind makes contact, the, the mind is quick to categorize this contact as pleasant, unpleasant, or somewhere in between. It's, it's almost a knee-jerk reaction. It's almost automatic. We put something in our mouth immediately, like it and don't like it. Look around, like what we see, we don't like it. Flowers, beautiful whatever else we may not like. And we categorize it then as pleasant, unpleasant, or in between. And because this is an automatic sequel, there isn't much we can do or need to do about it. Period. That's what happens. But the the conventional mind goes well beyond that, well beyond just appraising and noticing the quality of the contact. It zeroes in in such evaluation on that, all that comes its way because it's bent on, hardwired on, pursuing the pleasant pushing away the unpleasant and ignoring the rest. Why, why do you do that? Well, the, the Buddha's explanation, it's, it's very obvious when you start experiencing it, checking it out yourself. The mind does that because in the pursuit or the pushing away leads to the puffing up of I, me, mine. 
I like it. I don't like it. And further on, as the Buddha says, in this puffing up, he uses more technical language, but you know, I use simple language for it. And further on, by this puffing up, the I, our mind believes wrongfully that it can overcome impermanence. We don't like impermanence. We don't like our own impermanence. So, the I seems to be something that we can, if we puff it up well enough, will support us. So, that's a, in a brief focused outline what this teaching is about. Let me now follow it in more detail. Take, for instance, the situation of pursuing pleasure. There, the sequence goes from first, after, after we find something pleasant, first craving for it, then grasping for it, and then clinging to it. Hey, got it. In that process, the I becomes the craver, the grasper, the clinger, and gets really a boost, gets a boost for that. Makes itself believe it, the I, is in control of things. No matter that this process is eventually bound to fail, that everything is impermanent, that everything is out of our control. It is bound to fail to produce results. The desired result, anyway. Not just fail to produce the result, at times it bound to be counterproductive. See, we turn our love into clinging. We cling to our partner, we cling to our children, to whatever, for dear life. And in all likelihood, what we succeed in doing is not enhancing our connection, but in fact, turning them away. So, funny way, funny way to act in the world. But we keep doing it. And check it out in, in your own life. So that's how we become clingers, cravers, graspers, clingers, whatever the stage, stage is when we are facing the pleasant. What about when we are facing the unpleasant? In fact, the outcome is similar, different sign, plus in one case, minus in the other, negative in the other. There, the sequence goes from aversion to the unpleasant to rejection. 
and we end up lashing out at the object or person or whatever it is that triggers those feelings. Sure, the eye in the process gets a boost, absolutely. In the judgment, the eye becomes the judge. How dare she, how dare him, whatever. Imbued with all the righteousness in the world. And, and again, no matter that the process is totally futile, the only thing that it creates is irritation. And we still keep doing it. Now, facing the unpleasant, it's true, often we choose another option. We set up a wall to insulate ourselves from the unpleasant. We don't push it away, but we, we isolate. We insulate ourselves from any discomfort that the unpleasant generates. This can be a lifelong training. Some are more adept to do that than to push away. To anything unpleasant coming our way, we look the other way. And, and we, if we need to build a, a wall, we build a wall. We might, at times, misuse the meditation techniques to do that. There's a, a book by Christina Feldman, a, a British uh, meditation teacher, a very powerful one. A book, in fact, uh, called Women Awake that is addressed to women mostly. And, and she has uh, this interesting example. It's about a woman called Joanna, probably not the real name, of course. And Joanna says, I love to go on intensive retreats. The longer and the more silent they were, the better I liked them. I really had a hard time coming out, having to talk to people, having to manage my life. I felt assaulted inwardly and outwardly every time I left a retreat by my own feelings and by my need to respond to other people. I could hardly wait to go into another retreat. I could get so quiet when I could do nothing but sit and watch. I felt really insulted by one of my teachers. Sorry. I felt really insulted by one of my teachers when after describing my experience to him, he suggested that I was involved, involved in the pursuit of safety rather than understanding. His suggestion that I was using my spirituality to avoid myself and life really offended me. I felt I deserved praise for being such a good watcher, not blame. Now, she says, Joanna says, I feel grateful to him. 
It was true. My inner life is not so quiet anymore. But in feeling the pulse of my own life, I also feel the pulse of everything. Such seeking the safety through avoidance, through isolation, that Joanna described as her first reaction when facing the unpleasant, is actually, for all of us, the, the standard rule when facing the in-between. That is, when facing situations that are neither particularly pleasant nor unpleasant. Situations in which there are no obvious opportunities for the eye to gray, crave or reject anything. So why bother? If we can't take things personally, let's just forget them. Let's just set aside and bask in whatever Im image I can contrive for myself. For instance, an image of perfection. Here we have another of uh, Christina's students doing just that. Her name is, again, real or fictional name, Kelsey. She says, I was a perfect candidate for perfection. I brought to my spiritual path immeasurable depth of anxiety and guilt. I was so tired of being a victim. It was a true revelation to be offered the path of being a master. I saw the way to be in control of my life. I just had to become perfect. I wasn't going to let anything distract me from my goal. When my mother was sick, I praised myself for being unmoved by the pleas from my family to come home. When I went through periods of doubt and anxiety, I congratulated myself for overcoming them. When my menstrual cycle stopped, I even felt I had finally managed to overcome my body. I had so much to transcend that it kept me constantly busy, and I enjoyed pitting myself against anything that challenged my pursuit. It was a lonely path and time, but I even managed to quell those feelings most of the time. It took a long time for me to face the dishonesty of my pursuit. I was trying to become inhuman. I didn't know how to be strong, only how to overcome. The perfection of myself was hard for me to live with, impossible for others. So, under whichever cover, 
Indifference is no solution from the conundrum of our lives. Whatever feelings lodged in our heart continue to be there, though bottled up. We end up ignoring not only the world around us, but also our authentic inner life. We tune it out. We tune ourselves out. Is this the way to run our lives? Hardly. Hardly. Fortunately, we have an alternative. And the alternative is to dwell infused, pervaded with equanimity. Equanimity, a condition which superficially, superficially resembles indifference, but is in fact its opposite. In the, in the language of the Buddhist instruction, uh, instruct, sorry, in the language of the Buddhist scriptures, there is an expression which characterizes conditions that appear similar to each other at the superficial level, but turn out to be poles apart when examined closely. This expression, used in the Buddhist scriptures and, and other places too, is the near enemy. So, in that language, indifference is the near enemy of equanimity. That is to say, I repeat, an adversary of equanimity masquerading as a friend. Hence, the admonition of the title of this talk, to not confuse equanimity with indifference. All right, so, we'd be right to ask at this point, if equanimity is not indifference, what isn't then? How do we keep away from getting, getting caught in I want or I don't want without tuning out of life by selecting I don't care? Just a, a, a little bit of, of linguistics here. Equanimity from its lacking roots means Equa, equal, animity, animus. So, a stable spirit, spirit that is stable enough. Um, the Buddhist, the, the word in Pali, the language of the Buddha is upeka. Then, Whatever it is. The equanimity is a condition that arouses, awakens in us an inner strength that will allow us to face the uncertainty, the ups and downs of life, while being fully present with both the inner and outer world.
notice that indifference might help us deal with that by being fully absent in both worlds. Unlike indifference, equanimity invites us to join the fray of life, to navigate through the actual circumstances of life as steadily and as wisely as possible. And to do so, guided by the reality, by the way things are, not by the agendas of the eye. Well, we've acquired equanimity. Still, the pleasant and the unpleasant register in our minds, but we do not any longer cling to one or reject the other. We have come to recognize that things have a way of finding a balance without us needing to interfere so much. And surely, surely without inviting the agenda of the eye to wreck the balance. The, the Buddha had a son called Rahula, who he, in fact, introduced, not surprisingly, to the practice of meditation. And he, in one of his scriptures, he gives him instruction. And this is what he says to his son in a short paragraph from, from a long sutra. He says to his son, Rahula, develop meditation that is like the earth. For when you develop meditation that is like the earth, arisen agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. I, I, I would translate it and get stuck there. That's really the, the meaning. Again, the Buddha says to Rahula, just as people throw clean things and dirty things, excrement, urine, spittle, pus, and blood on the earth, and the earth is not horrified, humiliated, and disgusted because of that. So too, Rahula, develop meditation that is like the earth. For when you develop meditation that is like the earth, arisen agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invite, invade your mind and remain. I was sort of amused by the metaphor of the earth because, uh, well, this uh, was probably true 2,500 years ago. Our earth is losing <laughs> its equanimity, its ability to cope, as we know very well. In fact, it's on the verge of breaking down. But that doesn't deny the metaphor on the country. It says this is true, and there are limits. There's limits to what our equanimity can accomplish. 
just as there's limits to what the earth can accomplish. But in fact, the, the, the fact that the earth is still there, it's here with us, is quite amazing, given all we have thrown into it. So within those limits, it's essential that we trust equanimity. In contemporary scientific language, there is a, a, a term that refers to the ability of any system to regulate itself. And that ability is called homeostasis. It applies mostly to biological systems. So maybe applied to self-regulating mechanical systems, perhaps. But the word comes from biology. Homeostasis is very obvious when we examine the workings of our body. For instance, our body has an inner thermostat. It works much better than the thermostat next door. But, you know, let's be grateful that that sound stopped. <laughs> anyway, it's amazing within such narrow limits, within what narrow limits our body keeps its temperature, even when we walk out in the cold or in the very warm weather. And, of course, it has limits in some conditions. Our body will stop being able to regulate and will freeze to death. Sure. Grant you. It also regulates the concentrations of a, a whole host of substances in our body fluids. When we go to physicians, as many of us do, we have this early exam, and the, it's amazing how the figures come out almost exactly where they were a year ago, and we've been doing all kinds of things to our body. When we run, it's true that our heartbeat and the rhythm of our breath accelerate, but it does that in order to keep steady the energy reserves of our body. For those of you who know biochemistry, the ATP level, whatever. Now, myself, like many others, uh, do exercise uh, regularly. In the winter, I bicycle, for instance. Uh, sorry, in the summer, I bicycle. In the winter, I go to my treadmill. And, and the treadmill is very interesting. It, it keeps me in reasonable shape, not to brag very much about that, but reasonable, both because it helps me exercise my, my body, my muscles, but also helps me exercise my regulatory system, my homeostatic system. I sprogam the treadmill so that it will, when my um, heartbeat 
goes down, it ratchets, ratchets up either the incline or the speed. In other words, my regulatory system is constantly being challenged. It's, it's very essential. And so, my homeostasis, homeostasis is given a chance to test itself. Now, what I've said about the body applies to the mind as well, of course. An uncultivated mind goes weak. We, we know that. Surely we know that. And a mind that has allowed its homeostasis, that is, its equanimity, to fall into the, this disuse has lost the ability to cope with life skillfully. How do we retrain the mind? What kind of treadmill do we use to re-enable our mind to deal with life? The answer is simple. That's what we are here for this weekend. Meditation practice is precisely that. Much as the program in the treadmill for the body um, challenges the body and its ability to respond properly, meditation also invites the mind to get out of the comfort zone. To get out of the uh, routinary and protective life style. And so far as it's appropriate. For instance, for two and a half days, don't speak, don't read, don't write. Instead, venture to all those difficult places where our conversations and our reading or whatever takes us away from. All our activities very often are a way of not being present with that which worries us. In the practice, we are invited to go to the difficult place, insofar as we are able to do that, of course. Just like the, the treadmill. The treadmill, in fact, my treadmill has a setting for age. See, I put it up in, in my age, which is uh, quite advanced, and, uh, and, and so I get a challenge that's appropriate to that condition, whatever. In meditation, we don't rely on mechanical presettings. We simply explore what are we, what do we dare doing? And if we go too far, we retreat a little bit. We acknowledge this is too much for me. I decide to go on a three-month retreat, and by golly, the end of a month is too much. I'll try again next time. Sure. 
course. In this mental equanimity training, our closest, best ally can be, for instance, a pain in the knee, a pain in the back, or a headache, or an itch in the tip of our nose. Oh boy, I can, I, I have to, I have to scratch it, can't bear it, <laughs> and, and not scratch it, whatever it is. Or, or with pain, there's not much you can do except you, you can take a, some, you know, aspirin, whatever it is that you take for pain. But, no, stay with it and practice with it. Or, or, or suddenly remember what she said or he said to me, how dare she say that to me. And not turning it off, not embarking in a, a whole crusade against that person, but actually just staying with the feelings that that generates. Going to the difficult places. As the Buddha said to Rahula, develop a meditation that is like the earth, that can take it all in without losing its balance. Take it all in with a pleasant, unpleasant, or anywhere in between. And don't get caught by it. Don't make any investment in the outcome. Pain is such a good opportunity for that. Because when we are with pain, a mind tends to habitually go to make an effort to terminate. When is it going to terminate? It must terminate. It can't take it. Can't stand it. Just, just be with it. You, you discover so much easier, you know. And in the meantime, you learn incredibly. You see, in meditation, you come to be fully at home in yourself. So you don't have to rely on this or that outcome of anything, because you're already fully at home. We sit. We make no demands that things be this way or that way. No demands that my back pain go away. We don't even, and this is very important, we don't even make the demand that we become equanimous. Because that already becomes a, a goal of something that we must get, and we become the get, I got equanimity. Uh, it's contradictory to equanimity to do that. Equanimity is something that we make ourselves available to. We create a mind space for it. 
And then we discover, we get a glimpse of it, and we discover, what a gift, what a gift. Thank you. We simply let in whatever sensation that may arise, linger for a while, and eventually dissolve. Sensations in the body, yes, and sensations in the mind. In the process, we learn to embrace the unforeseeable and unpredictable nature of our experience. Free from tensions, free from fear. We learn to stop clinging to pleasurableness, pushing away unpleasantness. And what we learn in our sittings become a superb resource for daily life as well. During the last uh, month or so, I, like many of you, I'm sure, spend uh, a number of hours, many hours perhaps, in front of the TV watching the horrors of the two major earthquakes that we've had in Haiti and, and uh, Chile. And it was very important for me because I could let my heart be touched profoundly watching the this grotesque heaps of corpses. And I could be touched by the despair of some of the survivors and also by the love displayed by them, by the solidarity displayed by them. The cultivation of equanimity made it possible for my heart to feel the pain and remain open. Here, a footnote. I've been praising equanimity throughout this talk, of course, but it's important to keep in mind a caveat that the Buddha himself made explicit uh, in the sutras, in the scriptures. Go to equanimity, but do not even think of clinging to it. It's not something to be clung to. It's something to be open to. An admonition that ap applies to all the most precious things in life. Appreciate them to the full, yes. But without the interfering stickiness that the eye is fond of bringing to it. 
any situation. In sum, equanimity is not about perfection. It's not another item in the agenda of the I. Equanimity is simply and most powerful a door to our freedom. Explore it. Let's shift for a few moments in silence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.